Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture. We are a non-profit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This presentation and many others are available through our online library at instituteofcatholicculture.org and on our ICC app. Whether you are looking for weekly Bible studies, in-depth courses, or talks related to the faith, you will find it at the ICC. Please check out our upcoming schedule of live online events and engage with us on social media. All are welcome to join our growing international ICC family. For handouts, links, and further study materials, please visit this program's page on our website or app. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. Heavenly King, Consoler, Spirit of Truth, present in all places and filling all things, the treasury of blessings and the giver of life, come and dwell within us. Cleanse us of all stain and save our souls, O good one. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our speaker this evening received his PhD in World Religions, World Church from the Theology Department at the University of Notre Dame and a master's in China studies at the Henry M. Jackson School at the University of Washington. Dr. John Lindblom has studied the Catholic Church in China for over 20 years. He's worked and studied in mainland China and has conducted research in Taiwan and Hong Kong. He currently serves as assistant professor of the practice at the University of Notre Dame's McGrath Institute for Church Life. His research and publication topics include the work of Chinese scholar of, of law and Bible translator John C.H. Wu, human rights and recent challenges facing Catholics in China. Please welcome back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Dr. John Lindblom. Welcome, doctor. Good to have you with us tonight. Great. Well, thank you for having me back and to talk about a very important topic. And um, so let's jump right in. The topic is about the underground and above ground church in China. Um, why is there a division between these two? So this evening, I would like to go through some of the historical background to explain why the division exists and then offer some perspectives on it. Um, and I, I noted that Peter had written, I think, in the description that I would untangle the subject. And uh, this is one of the most tangled subjects I have ever encountered. And so I'm not sure how much untangling I can do, but I will attempt to, to describe the situation accurately and, uh, and comment on, on what we can do at the end. Um, I want to offer a brief note on the sources because uh, Anthony Clark who has uh, spoken before for the ICC, has done much very good writing on this topic and, and many, many topics about the history of the Catholic Church in China. So I will be drawing uh, some from his writings in Catholic World Report. And he also has videos and a whole collection of photographs uh, about the historical times that I'll be referring to at Whitworth University. And uh, another valuable source that I'll mention is called Church Militant, Bishop Gong and the Catholic Resistance in Communist Shanghai by a Jesuit priest, Father Paul Mariani at Santa Clara University or University of Santa Clara. And um, that's a good source for the, especially the material from the 1950s. So going to the first slide, 
going back a little bit before uh, the split occurred uh, in the Catholic Church in China, from 1946 until 1949, uh, China was engaged in a civil war between the ruling Nationalist Party called the Kuomintang and the Communist Party, uh, which had organized over the previous 20 years before that and marched through the country and taken over parts of the country and engaged in battles against the Nationalist Party and also engaged in battles against the Japanese who invaded China in 1930, well, 1937. And so the communists and the nationalists had been fighting each other for a long time. But under Jiang Kai-shek was a baptized Christian in the Methodist church. And his wife, Song Mei-ling, who's with him in this picture, was from a very prominent Protestant Christian family in China. And But Jiang Kai-shek, uh, he, he investigated Christianity seriously in order to be able to marry Song Mei-ling. But he did make his Christianity his own and really combined it with a very traditional Chinese humanism. Um, and part of that uh, effort, well, the, the next slide is that he sent, uh, Jiang Kai-shek had a good relationship, in other words, with, with Catholics and with Protestant missionaries throughout China. So in the period from the roughly 1910s and 20s until the 1940s, there were many, many, probably thousands of Catholic and Protestant missionaries all throughout China uh, educating, teaching, doing charitable works, and they were a very strong presence uh, in China. The common, uh, and so this photo is of the family of John C.H. Wu. He was a scholar. I mentioned him briefly last time. He was a scholar of law who had drafted the constitution for the Republic of China under Chiang Kai-shek, and then later he was chosen to be China's representative to the Holy See. This is a picture of I don't, I don't know if you can see the pointer, but John Wu is the fellow in glasses to the right of the Pope in this picture. And then his wife is the lady three persons away from him to the left. Uh, Teresa is his wife. She was a, a traditional Chinese lady. And they're 13, they had 13 children. So most of the others in this photo are their children, except for this priest here. He's not one of their children. But uh, the rest are their children and maybe one or two sons-in-law, daughters-in-law. The youngest of these children is this little boy here, John Wu Jr., who is now 80 years old and is a, is a friend of ours, friend of my family, and lives in Virginia. So John Wu was sent to, uh, to the Holy See as China's delegate, and it, was, and, and it was the first time, this period was the first time that uh, China had an official representative in the Holy See. And then in the next slide, during this period, John Wu's version of the classical Chinese version of the Psalms was published in China and was, uh, was very, very popular. And his Chinese version of the New Testament was, was not published in mainland China because by the time it was ready in 1949, the communists had already taken over Shanghai and it, it could no longer be published in the mainland. So it was published in Hong Kong with a page of endorsement and encouragement from the Pope to, for Catholics to read it. Um, I kind of throw those in partly because the, the work of my uh, doctoral work was all about his uh, Psalms and New Testament translation. But it is an important development in the church. It shows that uh, the Catholic Church enjoyed the favor of the president of China up until the communist takeover in 1949. Even before 1949, the Communist Party was persecuting Christians, uh, such as the uh, Trappist monks of a monastery at Yang Jiaping. Uh, Yang Jiaping near Beijing, 
And uh, this was a death march and uh, a monastery of many monks was marched out and most of them died along the way due to torture, malnourishment, starvation, whatever. Some of them survived. And Anthony Clark, uh, a few years ago, interviewed the last surviving monk who had been on this death march. And that interview is available, uh, I believe, on Catholic World Report. A fascinating conversation that Anthony Clark has been able to have with a lot of people who survived these times. In 1949, the next slide, Chairman Mao Zedong, uh, who was the communist leader, established the People's Republic of China in 1949. And at that time, there were approximately 3 million Chinese Catholics and 1 million Chinese Protestants who were living in China. And as you know, the Communist Party was officially atheist, and they began to rather systematically persecute Christians, along with other people who were believed to have Western ideas um, or any ideas that the Communist Party thought were incompatible with its own program. So in uh, the next slide, I mentioned last time in, 19, in the 1950s, there was a persecution, especially against uh, Christians and people of other religions. It was all religions that were persecuted severely by the communists, but they did take they did make a special effort to attack Christians because they were seen as being tied to Western powers that were also uh, accused of imperialism and um, all kinds of crimes in China in, pa in the past centuries and in the, in the uh, late 1800s. And there's a whole history of, of why um, the Communist Party was so fiercely anti-Christian. It had to do with being anti-Western, and it also had to do with, with being atheist. So in 1951, uh, Father Beda Zhang, who was a young Jesuit, was very beloved by his, uh, by his uh, young Catholics in Shanghai, was arrested, tortured, and killed by the communists. Um, and I want to tell a brief story about this. I had just mentioned John Wu. Father Beda Zhang at the time was the priest who celebrated the wedding mass of one of John Wu's children. And I was in Taiwan about uh, five or six years ago doing some research, and I met a Spanish Jesuit priest named Father Rabago. He was 99 years old at the time I met him, but still sharp as a tack, in perfect health, walked without a cane, was as lively as you could be um, at that age. And, and we went to this event, it was an ordination of a Jesuit, and they showed a short film about the life of Beda Zhang, that priest who was killed. Father Rabago had personally known Beda Zhang back in the 1940s. And, and this old priest, 99-year-old priest, stood up and started you know, to talk to the people, to tell us, to tell this whole crowd of people about this priest. And he, he was just flooded with emotion, and he broke down crying, and he couldn't even talk about his friend. So... So that's a priest who was, I don't know if Father Rabago is still alive, uh, it's just a few years ago, but, but there are people still alive who either knew people or their parents knew these people in China. This was, you know, the 1950s, 1960s uh, was not very long ago for, for some of us. And so uh, also then from 1950 to 1955, all foreign missionaries and non-Chinese Christian teachers were systematically exiled from China. Catholic nuns and priests were forced to leave, and many were arrested as ideological saboteurs. And so this, this picture is of uh, some of the sisters who, on their way, who are on their way out of China. And then in 1955, the Bishop of Shanghai, Ignatius, uh, Bishop Ignatius Gongpin Mei, was arrested um, 
along with bishops from a few other cities and were imprisoned for a long time. Bishop Gong was imprisoned for 30 years. And I may have mentioned this part last time, but Bishop Gong was brought out before a crowd of Catholics and the communists tried to get him to denounce the Pope. And he, he said, if I denounce the Pope, not only would I not be a bishop, I would not even be a Catholic. You can cut off my head, but you can never force me to shirk my responsibilities. And the crowd of Catholics chanted, long live Christ the King, long live Bishop Gong. So he was taken back to prison where he lived, he was for 30 years. And um, then the next slide, in 1979, um, Pope John Paul II made Bishop Gong, named Bishop Gong as a cardinal in secret and didn't reveal, he, he announced to the world that he had named a cardinal in secret or in pectore, and, but he didn't tell the world who it was. You know, people suspected it, it might be in China, and it was, and then later, um, after Bishop Gong was released uh, and allowed to leave China, he traveled to Rome and then, you know, kind of received his official cardinal's installation from Pope John Paul II. In 1957, this is this goes to the next slide, number 10, the People's Republic of China established the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association uh, along similar lines to a Protestant group called the TSPM, the Three Self-Patriotic Movement. And the, this three self movement, it, it it had three principles: self governance, self um, self governance, self finance, self propagation, something like that. I forgot the three, but they had to be. The government's position was that these had to be independent of any foreign control or any foreign ties. And so, for Catholics, that meant they demanded that they cut any ties with the Pope, and they said, "You can belong to a Chinese church, but you can't be you can't be ruled, governed, or anything by the Pope." Uh, except in purely religious matters. And at the time, Pope Pius XII issued an encyclical in which he condemned the activities of the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association and declared bishops who, any bishops who participated in consecrating new bishops selected by the CCPA to be excommunicated. So the church responded with confrontation at this time. The Patriotic Association, now the most one of the most common misconceptions about the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association is that it is an alternative church. That is false. The Patriotic Association is not a church at all. It's a government organization that was set up to basically manage the affairs of the Catholic Church in China. So it is closely tied um, it's really a governing body that oversees and manages the affairs of the official or registered uh, Catholic community in China. But you will see in all kinds of media where it says that the Patri Patriotic Association is an alternative church. And it's important to make that distinction. It's a government organization. The church itself is still the Catholic church that is registered with the government. And it has done so, it has had to accept certain conditions. And one of those conditions is accepting the oversight and governance and, and de facto management and control of the Patriotic Association, which has, um, which has appointed bishops and um, kind of set boundaries or parameters around the official church, uh, defining what it can and cannot do. So for example, in the official church, they cannot speak or preach against any government policies. So during the era of the one child policy, you know, you could not, the, in the official church, priests could not preach against uh, practices like abortion or contraception, because that that contradict that would contradict official government policy. But they could preach about other things, so that's 
gives you a little bit of background on the on the patriotic patriotic association, but those who refused to uh, accept the patriotic association are the ones who became the underground Catholics, and those bishops and priests became the underground or official or, or unregistered um, priests and bishops. The term underground can, in some ways, be misleading when it's used today because it can refer to um, or it can kind of make us think that that these unregistered or underground Catholics are always in hiding and always on the run. That's not, that was the case at certain times in history, including the 1950s and 60s, but that hasn't been the case necessarily all the time since the 1980s. Um, I'll, I'll get to that in just a minute. First, I'll back up to the time when the persecution was the most severe. So this is slide, the next slide, number 11, it shows a bunch of mostly young people in front of a Catholic church. Chairman Mao launched the Cultural Revolution from 1966 until 1976, and um, many Catholic priests, nuns, and faithful and churches were attacked by young people who signed up to be Red Guards, uh, Mao's, Mao's young, young people who carried out these attacks. Uh, churches were gutted of their religious symbolism, seized by the government, and refurbished for secular uses. Um, so some churches were turned into dormitories for soldiers, or they were turned into, um, you know, barns where they would house animals, cows or pigs or whatever. They wanted to do what they could to kind of let people see that that these churches were, you know, nothing special. We can house animals in them or or whatever. Um, and thousands of Catholics and and believers of other religions were imprisoned, executed, or sent to labor camps. The next slide. Uh, shows a priest at the time in 1967, uh, Father Tsui Chenduo, at something called a struggle session. So you can see he, in the front, he his head is down, and there's a guard, a soldier behind him with a gun, and a chair, a portrait in the back of Chairman Mao. Um, a struggle session would be one of these meetings where uh, these officials would bring a priest or a bishop or a, or just a regular believer or a teacher or anybody in front of a crowd and try to force them to denounce their own, denounce their errors and their crimes uh, and and pledge their allegiance to Chairman Mao and to the party. And so his head is bad. In some cases, they would actually bind their arms or bind their neck and make force their head down. Sometimes they would get a dunce cap put on top of their head or a sign around their neck saying that this person is a counter-revolutionary or a running dog or some other insulting slogan. So when I previously mentioned Bishop Gong going through a struggle session, it would, it would have looked something like this with a big crowd gathered around. I think I had mentioned that the authorities wanted all the Catholics to be there because they wanted them to witness Bishop Gong uh, denouncing the Pope so, as an example for all the other Catholics to do the same thing. And then that's when Bishop Gong stood his ground. Um, in 1981, so the Cultural Revolution uh, as a whole was a time when Chairman Mao and the party and the Red Guards throughout China attacked not only Christians and religious people, but anybody who was perceived as having Western ideas. So that would include teachers, uh, professors, doctors, anybody who had been educated in the West, or, or it became such a fanatical time that even if somebody wore clothing that looked like Western clothing, or if they had a book that was an English book or a Western Bible, 
Um, anything like that could be an excuse for a person to be attacked. So it was a really a horrific time. Millions and millions of people uh, were attacked or died or humiliated or went insane or committed suicide. And there are quite a few, quite a lot of books written about this time, both about the religious dimension and the and you know just in society in general. One book I've read that has testimonies from this time is the title of the book is Ten Years of Madness. So it's a huge topic. Uh, I'll move on, but you can research it more if you if you care to. And then uh, Mao died in 1976, and then there was some reshuffling for a few years. And in 1981, China's officials removed the requirement for Chinese Catholics to swear independence from Rome and the Holy See, though the Pope is only allowed to be viewed by Chinese Catholics as a spiritual leader who has no administrative authority over the church in China. In 1982, the Pope's name in the canon of Holy Mass is allowed after decades of being illegal in China. So until that year, Chinese priests normally mentioned the Pope's name silently as they offered Mass according to the 1962 Missal and intoned the canon silently while facing liturgical East. So from 1982, the Pope's name could be included in Mass. And for all practical purposes, it wasn't until the early 80s that mass began to be offered in Chinese at all, because uh, that whole that whole years of the late 1960s and early 70s, when the Second Vatican Council took place and influenced the liturgy in the West, it had no effect on China. No one in China even knew about it. And so when when the church was allowed to resume offering masses in the late 70s and early 80s, all the priests who were still around the only mass they knew was the was the the Latin mass or the you know, 1962 mass. Um, so so the, starting from the early 80s, the official churches are allowed to reopen, allowed to resume operations, masses, and and something of a normal life is allowed to continue. But they still had to be under the control of the Patriotic Association, and um, and the Patriotic Association still more or less had control of the bishops and selecting bishops. So um, so a lot of Catholics who kind of had been through that worst of that persecution and, and had been completely without any public mass or any public prayers during that time, um, you know, started going back to the churches. And yet some people who had been in the underground church before said, no, this, the conditions are still not acceptable to, to start going back to these churches because the Communist Party, the, the Patriotic Association is still in charge, so we're still not going back. In 1994, the state passed regulations concerning places of religious worship that required all places of worship to be registered with the government. In 2000, I'm skipping a lot here, but I'm, I'm kind of hitting some of the major highlights for time's sake. In the year 2000, Pope John Paul II canonized 120 martyrs of China, including 87 who were ethnically Chinese. And the Chinese government responded by publishing criticisms of the Vatican's interference with Chinese affairs and accused several saints of sexual impropriety. So they did not like uh, John Paul II's elevating these Chinese martyrs to sainthood. These were not martyrs who had been killed in the uh, in the 20th century. These were uh, mostly people who martyrs who had been killed in past centuries up to the Boxer Rebellion, which took place around the year 1900, 1901. So the situation where there were two communities, the underground community and the official community, has existed or persisted since 
really since the 1950s, but kind of continued since the uh, early 1980s and, and continues until now. Um, in some places, underground simply means unregistered. So an, a church in a certain diocese or in a certain town or a certain city, um, there might be a regular looking church there. People go to masses there, but it simply has never registered with the government. But other than that, it seems to function fairly normally and local officials know about it and they just, you know, don't harass them too much because, look, these people are not really causing any trouble, um, but they just have not registered with the government. But they still are, are considered to be unregistered or underground because they're not registered with the government and they have not accepted the Patriotic Association's uh, management. And so, so why do we use the terms underground and above ground? Why don't we just always say unregistered and registered? That would technically be more accurate, but the Chinese Catholics themselves still use the terms underground di xia or above ground di shang. So that's one of the main reasons why I think we still use those terms too. And Anthony makes the comments I'll get to later about the question of why would you um, why would you stay underground or why would you join the official church? It's from the perspective, if we put ourselves in the shoes of Chinese people, it can be difficult. Um, if you're going to stick with the underground church, there's a good chance that you're going to be persecuted more and much worse. And people who lived through that time of the 60s and 70s, if they were in the underground church, most of them had a family member or more than one family member who was killed or persecuted or suffered in prison for a long time. Um, and I'll get to something later, but the first man I ever met who was from the underground community told me that he had had, that 14 of his family members had been killed by the communists, including one of his brothers who had been a priest. Uh, I'll, get to, I'll get back to him a little bit later. So there's no question that the underground Catholics have suffered a lot worse but all Catholics have suffered to some degree. Even those in the official church who lived through those times suffered just for being Catholics or Christians, because to be, to be honest, the government doesn't even know the difference between a Catholic and a Protestant or between a, a Christian and a non-Christian Westerner in some cases. So, um, so I'll, I'll come back to some of those themes a little bit later. In 2000, but Pope John Paul II wanted to heal this division. Pope Benedict XVI wanted to heal this division, and Pope Francis wa wants to heal this division. But it's very, very difficult, partly because there's this history of this animosity between the two communities. In some senses, the underground feel that the official Catholics are the ones who sold out to the communists. And that's a real perception on the part of a lot of people. But as I'm also going to share later, it's not always even that simple. Sometimes, um, it's the it's members of the same families. Some go, some are underground, some are official, uh, or even the same people. So uh, I'll, I'll get into that later. But there's a lot of crossover. It's not like there's a all, there's not like there's a distinct line. Sometimes the same people will go to mass with the underground priest and go to, and go to mass with the official priest. And sometimes the actual priest will serve in both the underground church and the official church. So there's there's a, a whole bunch of different kinds of situations. I'll get back to that in a minute. In 2007, Pope Benedict wrote a letter to Catholics in China, which was very well received by both communities, but it was censored by the government. In the letter, 
Benedict says clearly that it is permissible for lay Catholics to receive the sacraments in the registered above ground churches. Um, and he, a quote is, um, the lay faithful who are animated by a sincere love for Christ in the church must not hesitate to participate in the Eucharist celebrated by bishops and priests who are in full communion with the successor of Peter and are recognized by the civil authorities. The same applies for all the other sacraments. So a part I skipped was that during in the 1980s, most of the priests and bishops in the official registered church applied for recognition from the Holy See, from the Pope, and received that recognition. So this was a way of re regularizing the situation where the priests who were serving in the official church were recognized by Rome, and they could tell their congregation that they were recognized and approved, and um, and so therefore people could feel feel comfortable about uh, worshiping in the, those official churches. But there were still some bishops and priests who did not uh, seek that recognition and receive that recognition, and the faithful tended to stay away from them as much as possible. Um, and Pope Benedict even went so far as saying um, that if the lay faithful could not find priests who were, um, who were in communion with the Pope, um, they may, for the sake of their spiritual good, turn also to those who are not in communion with the Pope. So Pope Benedict really gave maximum latitude for the sake of lay people to, to meet their spiritual needs. Um, at the same time, the Pope said, referring to the Patriotic Association, that its purpose of implementing, quote, the principles of independence and autonomy, self-management, and democratic administration of the church, unquote, is incompatible with Catholic doctrine. So the goals of the Patriotic Association, which were, that quote was from the Patriotic Association's own, own documents, that the Catholic Church had to be independent, by which that meant independent of the Pope. Uh, the Pope Benedict made it clear that that is not compatible with Catholic doctrine. And so that's why the officials didn't like his letter. In 2014, local Chinese party officials in several provinces started ordering the removal of crosses from Christian churches and some churches were completely demolished. This included Catholic and mostly Protestant churches, but also Catholic churches. The party's explanation is that these Christian churches are, quote, unregistered or, quote, unruly. And this happened mostly in, there's one part of China called Wenzhou where Protestant Christianity has grown a, a great deal. So, so Protestant churches were popping up all over the place and putting big crosses on the top of their churches. And the local officials didn't like didn't like the sight of looking out over the skyline and seeing crosses everywhere. So that's one of the reasons they started making churches take down all these crosses. And then um, starting in 2015, um, Communist Party chairman Xi Jinping, who is currently the ruler of China, launched a campaign called the Sinicization of Religions, insisting on, well, his quote, China must adhere to the direction of the Sinicization of Religion insist on uniting the masses of religious believers around the party and the government. So this quote is from 2021, but he launched the same campaign under the same principles in 2015. So this idea of sinicization in, uh, literally means, the word literally means to make something Chinese or to sinicize it. And it ostensibly aims to make religions conform with Chinese culture, but this is culture as defined by the party. In actuality, the term is used to enforce adherence to party rule and directives. In 2018, um, 
the government issued revised regulations on the management of religious affairs, which brought the religious affairs department, uh, which previously had been a government department that was not directly under the governance of the Communist Party, it brought that work under directly under the governance of the party. So that meant that the Communist Party was directly managing religious affairs. And ever since that time, they have increased their control and increased the restrictions over uh, over all religious groups in China. So every uh, every registered, there are five registered uh, officially recognized religions in China, Catholic, Protestant, Islam, Buddhism, and Taoism. All five of those have an official association, uh, some form of the patriotic association of that religion. And uh, and they all, if you look at their websites one by one, you'll see they basically have the same thing on their website. Under the leadership of the party and Xi Jinping, we promise to love the motherland and support the motherland and, and obey and support you know, the program of the party. And then, you know, underneath that, then then we will, you know, practice our yes, we practice our religion, but the main thing is that we support Xi Jinping thought and the Communist Party. And so you can understand why. Uh, lots of people don't like this, won't go along with this. And so that kind of uh, accounts for unregistered communities among pretty much all those religions. Um, and and then religions that are not recognized at all by the government are simply illegal. So there are all kinds of different religious movements. Falun Gong is one of the most famous ones. There are others, one called Eastern Lightning. Um, there's several others that I know the names, but I don't have them right in front of me, but lots of different groups. And if the if the government really dislikes them, uh, they will be put on a, a list of cults. The government officially has a list called Xie Jiao, which is called cults, or it literally means unorthodox teaching. And, and those groups get persecuted the most severely. So Falun Gong, for example, is has been in the news a lot. And they are one of the groups that's persecuted the most severely, but there are a few others. Um, in 2018, the revised regulations on religious affairs, Article 4 says the state, in accordance with the law, protects normal religious activities, actively guides religion to fit in with socialist society, and safeguards the lawful rights and interests of religious groups, religious schools, religious activity sites, and religious citizens. The key word in that statement is normal religious activities because the government does not define what is a normal religious activity. So that that article is a is allow, allows wide latitude for any local officials to say, well, what you're doing is not normal religious activity, therefore you can't do it. Um, now I'm gonna turn a little bit more of a focus on above ground and underground or, or offer some perspectives because there are different perspectives and different approaches to this question. So I wanna uh, offer two thoughts. One of them I heard when I was uh, first officially doing China studies in, at the University of Washington, one of my professors said, whatever you've heard about China, it's probably true somewhere. So we all, we any of us who, who read any news about China have or heard people talking, you might hear somebody say, well, this horrible thing is happening in, it has happened in China. And we think we might think it's happening all over China. It may or may not be happening all over China. It's probably not happening all over China because it's a huge country with many different regions. And, um, you know, so things might be really bad in one place, but, but, but nothing happening at all in, in another place or something different happening in another place. 
Um, so whatever you've heard about China, it's probably true somewhere. Another thought, uh, Father, at, before this talk started, Father mentioned Sherry Waddell in her book, Forming Intentional Disciples. Some of you know that book. Um, Sherry happens to be a friend of mine, and I, I've known her since she got started that institute. One of her one of her um, one of her main thoughts that she says often is never accept a label in place of a story. Never accept a label in place of a story. So in my encounters in China, when when I think about that in in regard to this question of underground and official Catholics, underground and above ground, um, you find surprises all the time. Um, so Anthony Clark said one of the comments, one of the questions he most frequently gets, and I get this question too, aren't there two communities in China, a true church that exists underground and a false church that exists above ground that is run by the communist party. So I just explained that the above ground church is not really run by the communist party, but the communist party sets parameters that they have to stay within. Um, there is no such thing as a state-run Catholic church. There's this state-run association. I've already talked about that. And the issue um, between the two communities has not been about whether one is more or less Catholic than the other, but rather around the question of, quote, selling out to state influence over the day-to-day -day operation of Catholic life, especially the issue of how bishops are selected or ordained. Chinese Catholics view themselves as part of one suffering Catholic church that is still working out how its two communities can come to an agreement about how to best practice the Catholic faith under a communist government. So if you go to an official church in China and to start talking to people, they'll say, yeah, we love the Pope. We accept the Pope. We accept everything about the Pope. Um, but we have to do, we have to do, you know, certain things for the government that are more or less just pro forma. We just, you know, let them put the flag in the church or let them put up a couple of signs in the church. And then other than that, they leave us alone. And from a practical standpoint, that that by and large might be true. So the big cathedrals in Beijing or in Shanghai or other places, they're allowed to have, you know, Bible classes in RCIA and they baptize hundreds of people, um, sometimes hundreds of people every year. Uh, and the churches are full and people are coming and they're worshiping and they're receiving the sacraments. And, you know, there's a sign at the entrance to the church that says, yeah, this is the Patriotic Association. Or there might be an office door and a sign on the door says the Patriotic Association. But people just walk by and ignore that. And Anthony Clark makes the point, too, that often that that office is empty or it might be used as a storage room. Nobody actually goes to that office or does anything, but it's just there. It's a sign the government can point to it and say, yes, we have the Patriotic Association here. Or there's a list of rules at the at the front of the church that says, you know, you have to support the party, you have to support the party and support the government. You know, you can't uh, go against the teaching on birth control and this and that and this and that, all these rules. And so people just walk by, priests just ignore it. But, you know, they're kind of like saying, yeah, well, we just tell them what they want to hear and then they'll mostly leave us alone. Now, that approach is very common in China, especially under the communist regime, not only for Christians, but for everybody, because lots of people in China, Chinese, uh, by and large, lots of Chinese people take the mentality that, that, that says, well, we just have to be practical. We just have to do what we need to do to survive. And if we just, you know, give them, you know, give to Caesar what is Caesar's or whatever, or let them have, let them hear what they want to hear, 
they'll leave us alone. And there are some places where unregistered or unofficial priests, I met one underground priest who had a good, said he had a good relationship with the local officials. Sometimes he went out to dinner with them. Um, and, you know, they respected, they respected him and mostly left him alone. Um, but for other folks, as I've mentioned already, um, that's giving too much. You just can't, you just can't give that much to this kind of a, of a government. Um, you give them an inch and they're inside your tent or whatever analogy you want to use. So, um, many underground church leaders, and this continues now, many leaders in the underground church or underground community have been pressured to join the patriotic association. That is to declare independence from Rome. And those who have refused have at times been detained, disappeared, tortured, or even killed. Some remain detained or under surveillance today, while others remain under pressure to join the patriotic association and register with the government. So the issue for most of them is not registering with the government per se, it's joining the patriotic association. Um, one friend of mine who I just talked with a few days ago, she told me about a priest that she knew who, a bishop she knew, who was unofficial, unregistered, and he he reconciled and joined the official church and registered with the government, but he was not, he they never required him and he never did join the patriotic association. So in a sense, that's the situation that we want to see, because in most countries, uh, even in the U.S., you know, priests or, or, or Catholic churches register with the government, um, but it's not a problem because the government isn't trying to, to control them. But, um, but this priest who, who, who went ahead and registered with the government, they didn't require him to join the Patriotic Association, so they didn't require him to say anything about independence from the Pope, and he just carries on his ministry normally. So is that a good situation or not? Uh, Cardinal Joseph Zen of Hong Kong um, said of recent years, uh, of the happenings of recent years, tearing down crosses and demolishing churches are only the most visible episodes. The continuous harassments and humiliations endured by China's Catholics would take volumes to be narrated. So Cardinal Zen is a highly respected person who, who spoke out against the um, Sino-Vatican agreement that it was signed in 2018. I'll get to that agreement in a few minutes, but I'm, uh, I'm trying to be mindful of the time. I've got a few more slides that I'll go through quickly. Next slide, slide 15. Um, one of the underground bishops who was mistreated, tortured, and killed was Fan Shuiyuan. He was a bishop who was uh, constantly opposed to the uh, Communist Party. He was, he was one of the leading bishops who was ordaining other bishops in secret with the per special permission of the Pope. And he was one of the most recalcitrant, so the government was very hostile to him. And they killed him and they put his body in a plastic bag and, and left it outside of the home of his family in 1992. And um, they thought that, I don't know, somehow the government officials thought that his funeral would be a small affair. And 40,000 Catholics showed up for his funeral. And the government never did that to another bishop again because they didn't want that to happen again. 40,000, that, that would fill a sports stadium for the funeral of this beloved underground bishop. The next slide, Bishop uh, Sujermin. Uh, James Sujermin uh, was uh, detained or disappeared by the 
by the government in the 1990s. So he's been missing for over 25 years. Uh, there's a good chance that he's no longer alive. He was seen in a hospital. He was reportedly seen in a hospital one time, um, but his the officials never provided his family with any information about him. Another well-known underground bishop is the next one, Bishop Julius Jajaguo in, uh, in Hebei province. He is a beloved bishop who has um, cared for orphans for many, many decades and been a, a, a faithful underground bishop. Uh, people love him dearly. He has been in and out of detention many, many times, detained and released, detained and released, but he's still alive. He's under either some form of house arrest or surveillance now, but, um, but not officially imprisoned. Um, and by the way, you can see this picture, this image up at the top, it says Congressional Executive Commission on China. That is a commission within the U.S. Congress that, uh, that has a political prisoner database that has uh, these little profiles on political prisoners, religious prisoners, uh, human rights lawyers, anyone who is arbitrarily detained by Chinese authorities. So if you want to search, you can look up Catholics, you can look up uh, other Christians, you can look up Falun Gong, you can look up lawyers, you can find uh, descriptions of the stories with sources of any political prisoner in China. So the next slide, 18, Father Liu Honggang is another beloved priest in Hebei province um, who is the pastor in an area, was the pastor in an area where a famous Marian shrine is in China. So he's been detained since, uh, also detained many times, but has been detained without, well, since 2015, he's been detained. But I just heard recently from a friend of mine who is in contact with underground Catholics in China that Father Liu Honggang has been released and allowed to visit his family. And then sometimes what happens is the authorities will release them for a period of time and then detain them again. Uh, sometimes they'll get to leave for the spring festival for a couple of months or a month and then have to go back and be under detention. But Father Leo has been effectively prevented from, from uh, engaging in ministry. The next slide, uh, Bishop Tsui Tai was detained in, uh, in January 2022, but he's another bishop who's been detained many times over the years. Um, and so for about the last year, year and a half or so, there hasn't really been any news about him and, and what's happening to him. And there have been some reports that he's been tortured. So slide number 20, however, shows you a little bit of a different picture. Anthony Clark wrote about these two. This is an above ground bishop uh, Wang Chongyi, Wang Chongyi, and an underground bishop Hu Daguo, who lived together at the Guiyang Cathedral in Guizhou Province. So these were two bishops from from the two communities who cooperated with each other and helped each other and lived in in the same place. And sometimes in churches, and this may have been one of them, sometimes the official mass will be at 9 a.m. and followed by the un unofficial mass at 10 a.m. And you have different communities coming coming in, or maybe. Or maybe the unofficial mass will be in a smaller chapel and not in the main church where the official mass is. So I also visited a small Catholic village one time in Hebei province. And uh, this man, I had met this man. I was working at uh, one of China's Catholic charities, Jindo Charities in Hebei. And a, a local Catholic man from a local village kept urging me to come out and visit his Catholic village. So one time, so I went out there 
and it was it was beautiful. This village was rebuilding their church that had been destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. The underground and the official folks were working together to rebuild their church. And I went to mass and their mass was in an outdoor space. There were probably 800 people at this mass, a huge crowd on one side that was all women with all the young girls up in front and a huge crowd on the right side that was all the men with all the young boys up in front. That was traditional in China for the men and the women to sit on different sides of the church. And and so I walked into this, um, to the mass and everybody turned and looked at me. All 800 people turned to look at this foreigner who was who was walked in the door. And it was in an outdoor space. It had a big tin roof over the top, and but open walls. And um, the mass was concelebrated by two priests. One was un- underground and one was official. This community was trying to implement Pope Benedict's uh, stated desire that the two communities would reconcile and come together. So this was a beautiful example, in my opinion, because I saw how they were worshiping together and coming together and the two priests were celebrating together. In another nearby place in Hubei, uh, another small Catholic neighborhood, um, the two communities I heard had tried to work together, but then had decided it wasn't going to work. And so they went went ahead and continued in their separate ways, worshiping separately in different church, separate churches, even though they were only located five or 10 minutes walk away from each other. So all kinds of situations exist. Um So a few perspectives. Some underground Catholics regard themselves as the faithful remnant and regard the official church or the or the official Catholic, yeah, the above ground church as a as completely legitimate, illegitimate or sold out to the CCP. And some of them oppose Pope Francis and feel betrayed by the Sino-Vatican agreement. Um, And some of these folks uh, even are very strongly attached to private revelations. One of my friends who I who told me about them referred to them as the hardcore underground. Others that my friend called the moderate underground do not oppose Pope Francis per se, even though they oppose the agreement and may feel betrayed by the agreement. Um, in some places, as I mentioned, some underground priests enjoy good relationships with both above ground clergy and even with local officials. So I mentioned the two priests who can, can celebrate a mass and in other places they remain separate. Um, one young woman who I mentioned, who has studied in the U S said that the government, well, she said the government doesn't interfere very much in the day-to-day operations of the church. This is a lay woman. And and kind of, as I told you, the government mostly, she felt the government mostly left them alone. And she, when she said uh, a lot of Catholics in China don't even know about the difference between underground or unofficial and above ground. And, um, and that the priest that she had visited, well, she said she visited this village where the church itself was unregistered, but it was still allowed to function. And the po- local police even gave a police escort to an underground funeral. So um, so again, it brings us back to, um, if you think this applies, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not saying this is a, uh, always a hard and fast rule, but never accept a label in place of a story. You have all kinds of different variations on these themes, and it and they don't um, they don't always fit in, in the clear cut ways that we might imagine. So, what can we do? I've just listed a few things. Um, we can pray for reconciliation between the two communities that is allowed to happen in union with with the Holy See, with the Holy Father. Um, they are all baptized Catholics, and the vast majority of them say that they are loyal to the Pope and the Universal Church. 
we can learn more about them, read their stories from Catholics in both communities and hear their perspectives, get to know Chinese Catholics if you're able to do so. Um, you can visit Chinese Catholic communities in the US if there's one in your where you live. There are many Chinese Catholic communities around the US and in North America and some other parts of the world. And then you can look at resources on websites such as the US-China Catholic Association. They have a good informative website and uh, some other resources. And I will share those with, uh, with Peter and we can share them with you. So I know I went beyond my time a bit and I didn't even get to the Sino-Vatican Agreement. That's a massive topic and might have to wait for another time. Um, there's a lot that has been said about that and, and could be said. And um, like I said, I'm not necessarily going to untangle all the issues that I brought up because it's going to take a lot of work. Well, that's great. Thank you, doctor, for uh, an excellent presentation. And certainly, you know, you gave us a lot of context for those who are watching the conversation or following the conversation around the 2018 agreement. Um, you've given us a lot of helpful principles and, and information to, to, you know, help untangle that ourselves. But, but yes, yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe we'll get into it a little bit in q and I'm sure that there are going to be a lot of questions on it, but we'll see. We'll see what happens when we get there. I was just so struck by your point when we got to the popes in, in sort of the timeline of developments. And this is something that I, I mean, it struck me because I think that we, we tend to forget it. Um, you know, looking at this as a purely political issue, kind of ironic because we're looking at the church in China, but for the for for the popes and, and really our emphasis should be as well. It's about the reconciliation um, between members of the body of Christ. And I know that I miss sight of that in watching. You know, it, it's a question of oh well, what should the what should we do vis-a-vis -vis the government and and this or that. And as it, it maybe remains a purely political issue, but it's easy to forget that at, at the end of the day, it's about brothers coming back together. So. A, a, a wonderful presentation. Thank you. Thank you. We'll, we'll head into Q and A here. We've got uh, we've got some time for your questions, Doctor. Why don't we start? I did see a hand on screen. I think from Rosemary. Yeah, go ahead and uh, and kick us off here. Unmute yourself for your question. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Mr. Limblom, for the wonderful presentation. Very uh, filled with information. I took lots of notes, so I can look things up later. Um, but um, I wanted to mention, I met a woman from China um, years ago who had been around when the split occurred, um, when the communists took over and the split occurred between the churches. And um, and she wrote her autobiography and, um, and people from the Patriotic Association were actually, I mean, lay people were um, physically attacking even those who wanted to remain faithful to the Pope to try to get them to come over and, and so that was a very stark situation at that time. And um, clearly, especially from your presentation, we can see it's much, it's not as uh, clear cut or black and white at this time, but but for those who were there at that time, it was, it was pretty stark uh, it's from, from what I could see. But I wanted to ask about the Chinese Catholic communities in the United States or around the world. Are there, um, are there concerns among the Chinese that, um, you know, would there be spies and and things like this? And um, and are, and in my experience, sometimes Chinese that I might meet are meet are kind of hesitant um, to move forward into a Catholic community where there are Chinese for fear of being known or perhaps becoming spied on and things like this. So I wanted you to just address that. 
That's a that's a good question, and I haven't um, I haven't looked at it very closely, but there 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 could be those concerns, especially among students, younger students in the U.S. Um, at universities uh, or at Catholic, especially at Catholic or other Christian universities. Um, some of them get discouraged by the Chinese consulates in the U.S from participating in religious uh, services. Um, I, I haven't specifically heard anyone say that they have stayed away from Chinese Catholic communities in the US because they are concerned about spies. That doesn't mean it, that doesn't, mean it doesn't happen, but I'm, I haven't heard of it. Um, those communities tend to be pretty small and the people there tend to know each other pretty well for the most part. Um, so it could be a concern. I just haven't heard a lot about it. Thank you. This question comes in from Mary um, asking, how is the underground church different now from, uh, than, than the underground church before the period of sinicization right, the, in the last uh, 10 years or so you said? The difference, I, I don't think it would be much different other than um, it's under more pressure now than it was before, specifically the underground clergy uh, and specifically in some places. So um, the, the intensity of the conflict between underground communities and local officials tends to be more intense in some cities than in others or some dioceses than in others, particularly certain dioceses where the underground community is stronger uh, bigger in numbers, or the priests and bishops there are seen as being particularly strong in their resistance to, to officials. So uh, the pressure has grown on underground communities in the last five to eight years under Xi Jinping. So there could be an atmosphere of, you know, stronger pressure and they have succeeded in, you know, they have succeeded in getting some priests and bishops to register with the Patriotic Association and and um, go along with the party line and support the party line publicly, whether or not they feel that they are doing it privately, they're doing so publicly. So there are some clergy who have who have done that. And the faith, some of the those underground faithful might see them as having sold out. Those clergy, their perspective might might be something more akin to, well, this is just doing what we have to do to survive, or it might be you know, we can engage in ministry if we'll if we register with the government, they'll let us, you know, minister to the people. If we if we stick with the underground, we're just going to be on the run all the time or completely shut down and not able to do anything. Uh, one underground bishop, this is a this is a pretty extreme case, but it was widely publicized. One underground bishop was leading a diocese and he was asked at the time of the Sinovacan agreement to step aside and allow a different bishop who previously had been excommunicated because he had been uh, consecrated a bishop without papal mandate, um, Pope Francis asked him to ask the underground bishop to step aside and become the assistant bishop or the auxiliary bishop and allow the, the, the guy who was previously excommunicated to become the ordinary bishop. And this underground bishop decided to go along with that for the sake of harmony and of doing what the Pope asked and to hopefully allow a normal situation to uh, 
to happen going forward. Um, he did that, but he continued to be harassed and pressured, and he eventually decided to simply retire from public ministry completely and just kind of stay at home and close his door. And he's now sort of a retired bishop, a retired under, underground bishop who isn't doing public ministry. Whether he's whether or not he's doing any ministry privately, I don't know. Well, very tricky. Um, let's we'll go back on screen here, Barbara. I see that you had uh, a question. You want to jump in here? Oh, uh, I'm I'm sorry. I I just I've been following this for probably about well um, at least fifty years, and I it, it, the thing that concerns me is I and and again I have more um, experience personally with uh, USSR and and uh, escapees and and refugees that we have our our family is housed, and I, I just seem to be hearing the same thing over and over again. If we just give a pinch of incense and pretend that we're going along then we can do what we need to do. And, and maybe it's it's too simplistic, but I, I just, I see that with this Vatican Accord, everything that I've, that I've read, that I've, I've uh, researched over the last 10 years, I, I, I'm sorry, but I, I'm just not so naive as to think that if we just give that pinch of, pinch of incense, we can continue with the, the, the evangelization and the, and the transformation of the world. Uh, it, it 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 strikes me as uh, the theater of the absurd. I, I am I being naive here? I, I you know. Yeah. So, Doctor, your your thoughts on the 2018 Please. Accords? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I know. I do not think you're being naive at all. And uh, a lot of people uh, have voiced their agreement with with that perspective that you just gave, and I agree with it too. And Cardinal Zen has been the Cardinal Zen of Hong Kong has been a very strongly opposed to the agreement since before it started. Uh, he tried personally to persuade Pope Francis not to engage in this agreement. He brought a letter from an underground bishop to Pope Francis and tried to give it to Pope Francis, or he did give it to Pope Francis. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, Pope Francis went ahead with the agreement and Cardinal Zen for a while was saying that this was mostly orchestrated by Cardinal Perlin, the Vatican Secretary of State, and that and that he was just uh, so strongly desiring to get an agreement with China that he was willing to give just about anything. And, and Cardinal Zen wrote an article in the New York Times, an opinion in the New York Times called Pope Francis Doesn't Understand China. And Cardinal Zen was trying not to criticize Pope Francis directly. Um, but was really trying to say that the Pope's advisors are not uh, are not advising him well. But in the end, Pope Francis came out very publicly and said, I, this, this agreement is my responsibility. I take responsibility for it. And I think this is the way to go because even though it's difficult and even though, well, even though it's difficult, we have to do something. We have to try to do something to move this situation forward and to normalize the situation. So that's that's the Pope's perspective. A lot of people disagree with it. Um, hu human, you know, a lot of critics have, I, I, I've read a lot about this, I studied a lot about this. A lot of critics criticize it on the human rights grounds. How can you make an agreement when there still are, are bishops imprisoned or being tortured or harassed or whatever, um, or other, other um, you know, unjust laws or practices? One of the unjust, uh, well, one of the restrictions that I didn't really get into was that nobody under the age of 18 is allowed officially to go into into church. 
Um, now that's maybe not really enforced all that strictly, but that could be enforced and it is probably in some places and it certainly would act as a deterrent because parents don't want their children to get into any kind of trouble. And so that would keep people away. So, uh, so no, I don't think you're being naive. Cardinal Zen doesn't think you're naive. Uh, some people think the Pope is being naive. Um, some people do take the opinion that, you know, even with a bad communist regime, you have talking to them and trying to get them to remain in dialogue with you is better than not talking to them and just opposing them. So it's two different perspectives on how to deal with a difficult opponent. Thanks, Doctor. We uh, we've got a lot of questions coming in uh, along these lines. I'm going to kind of grab one of them as as uh, representative of a number. Um, Mary asks if the government still has a heavy hand, uh, you know, especially with the registered Catholics, uh, does the government still have a heavy hand in monitoring certain doctrinal teachings that they see opposing the secular authorities, you know, the, the, the regime's values like birth control, sexual issues, abortion, uh, and other such things? A lot of questions along these lines. I don't, I heard once, I didn't verify this myself, but I heard once that the government did not censor the parts of the catechism that talk about these issues, but they censored other parts of the catechism with regard to Catholic social teaching. But I don't know the details on that. I didn't look into the, I haven't looked into that question deeply. Um, on a, uh, my sense is that, you know, at a practical level, uh, the official churches, as I mentioned in the talk, would not, would not, uh, dare to speak up against any government policies and you know the one child policy and now it's the three child policy the government's trying to encourage people to have more children but they still want to retain the right to limit it to three children um, but the population of china has is is or the, the birth rates in china have dramatically decreased in the last five years and the population has started to decrease and is predicted to decrease uh, much more rapidly in the years to come um, so I don't think the government is trying to alter doctrine too much, but, uh, I'm going to qualify that by saying I could be, I could be wrong about that, or I could be, let's just say less informed than I need to be. Sure. Sure. Well, thank you. Uh, Maria here on screen, go ahead. I was wondering about um, you know, this move to, you know, sort of make Catholicism, you know, more Chinese, like what, what are the implications for what Catholic um, Catholicism would be like if, if they really get their way, so to speak, beyond just the changes about the authority of the Pope and things like that? Authentic, um, the word is um, enculturation. The church strongly supports authentic enculturation. That is the adaptation of the Catholic faith to whatever cultural context it's trying to evangelize around the world. And there are a lot of Chinese Catholics who have done some really wonderful work in, for example, finding harmony between uh, the Chinese uh, sages of ancient times or Chinese wisdom and, um, and Catholic spirituality. One of my favorite books by John C.H. Wu, the scholar I mentioned at the beginning, he's got a wonderful book of essays called Chinese Humanism and Christian Spirituality. It was published in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, but republished in 2017 by Angelico Press. A wonderful book that compares, for example, St. Therese of Lisieux and Lao Tzu 
uh, the writer of the Tao Te Ching, and um, and shows elements of Confucianism that are very compatible with Chinese culture. And John Wu himself, in his Bible translation, borrowed heavily uh, words and phrases from Confucian classics and from Taoist classics and other Chinese classics in translating the New Testament into Chinese. So, um, so a lot of this kind of enculturation work has really already been done in beautiful ways. There's a Catholic musician in Taiwan who has, for example, taken some of the Chinese psalms and put them to music um, in a Chinese style. So, um, and John Wu's translation of the psalms put the Book of Psalms into Tang Dynasty style poetry. So there's a lot of that kind of enculturation. If that's what you're referring to, that's that's a really good and beautiful thing that the church supports. Uh, but the government means something different. They don't really care that much about authentic dialogue between between cultures, they really just care about, do you support our political power, but they don't want to say it outright. Um, so they want to say, you have, you know, they don't want to say the churches have to support communism. They want to say these churches have to be Chinese, but their interpretation of what it means to be Chinese would be disputed by a lot of, a lot of Chinese. Well, great. Thank you, Dr. We'll, we'll end with that. Would you like to close us in prayer this evening before we, uh, before we end? Sure, I'd love to. Um, in the name of the Father, and Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Uh, Heavenly Father, thank you for this time we've had to share together, and we pray together for the church in China, uh, for all those who are suffering, uh, for those who are longing to know you, to know the truth, and may Christ become known and loved among the people of China, and may the two communities that have suffered so much also have a true reconciliation uh, with one another and with the church. And, and we pray for a regime and a government in China that is just, just and fair for the good of all. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you, Doctor. Wonderful lecture tonight. Thank you for all of your preparation and, uh, and your time this evening. Sharing that with us is uh, really excellent. We hope you enjoyed this program from the Institute of Catholic Culture. Remember to download our app and share our online library with friends, co-workers, and family members. To learn more, get involved, and support the Institute's work, visit instituteofcatholicculture.org and visit us on social media.